a low-budget independent feature film from the 90s based on a semi-autobiographical novel about one journalist's psychedelic-fueled exploits through Sin City in the 70s during the Vietnam War, which was also directed by a truly singular filmmaker? If all that sounds a bit jumbled and disorienting, then you've only just begun to get just a tiny taste of today's film, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. To even say this film is one of a kind is an understatement. Today, the possibility of physical and mental collapse is now very real. So please order us some golf shoes as we try to find some footing in bat country, all just to ask the question, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, what's it about? I'm your host, Ricardo Boyd Diaz. And I'm Seth Crow, And this is the What's It About Film Podcast, the show where two aspiring creatives aim to glean the meaning of it all through the media we consume, holding a mirror up to ourselves and seeing how it... Fuck! Holding a mirror up to ourselves and seeing how it reflects in our own lives. The the vibe is off, guys. Uh, peek behind the curtain. We've been trying to... Say something! Stop <laughs> saying something. Am I okay? Say something. Am I still okay? Did I say that out loud? Or did I say that out loud or did I just think it? Uh, I So right before we were trying to start recording this podcast, something's going on with my mic and my and all my audio stuff. Where I, There's a whole bunch of problems. And so now I feel like my vibe is completely off because I was so – People don't we seem just to took get mad. Six hits. We took six hits of acid before we started this podcast. No, we did not. <laughs> Children don't get acid. <laughs> but uh, uh, so I, I'm in a, a state right now that I usually am not in when we start these podcasts that I'm in. But you know what? Maybe that's appropriate for this movie because this movie is all about being in altered states of mind, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I hadn't seen this movie in over 10 years. And uh, it hit different because I've had some life experience since then. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, it's still whack. I mean, it's still you still it's still hard to, you know, pick through it. Uh, yeah, we'll get into chaos. that in a little bit. But like, um, yeah, this the movie we're doing today we're talking about is Fear and Loathing Us. Wow, I am really off. Holy crap. Uh, the film we're doing today is Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which came out in 1998. I don't know why, but I thought it was made way earlier. Yeah, me too. I thought it was like the early 90s. Me too. I even thought yeah. potentially the 80s, but maybe that's because the aesthetic is 70s, like early yeah. 70s. So maybe like that, yeah. it just has that vibe to it. Um, so Seth, yeah, so you saw this, you said you first saw this film about 10-ish years ago? Or yeah. it's just been 10 years since you've watched it at all? 10, 10, 10 plus years. I guess I was 19 or 20 when I saw this movie. So I guess over 10, like 13 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's, I've only seen it the one time prior to this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the day I saw it, literally hours after it, I got the worst food poisoning I've ever had in my whole life. As a result so, of the movie? Well, no, but it was just weirdly coinciding, right? Because this movie is nauseating. It is absolutely nauseating and that's not the word i'm gonna use but <laughs> uh but it it was weird because like as i was watching the movie i started getting nauseous right? oh. and so like wow this and, movie's really affecting me yeah yeah and then like i i ended up going to the hospital with oh shit. yeah yeah i had to carry my girlfriend to the car because she had passed out 
Oh, cause she had food poisoning too. Yeah, yeah, and we only had one bathroom, bro. It was, oh, it was a, no. it, it was, it was like the movie came to life. <laughs> oh no, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry to yeah, unnamed yeah. girlfriend at the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh man, what did so, you guys eat? We had some really bad barbecue. Oh no, were you? In, so you're 20. Were you? You were still in Knoxville at that time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was still in college, um, and. And so I don't rem- honestly this movie like I only remembered a couple things about it because what happened after was so intense. Yeah. That that I I just remember like all I remembered about this movie was like the lizard people mm-hmm. and like lots of like trashed hotel rooms. Like that's all that's all I remembered. Well, so, you know, uh, it, it, there's not a as far as like a movie goes, there's not a whole lot of story to remember. It is kind of just like no. moments. And so like I can understand like especially if you were sick, like it's like what did I watch? I don't really remember. So it's, it all kind of blends together. I mean there are some moments that stand out that we'll I'm sure touch base on. But it is not a movie whose story really grabs you and it could be very easily kind of just like all – when did that happen in the movie? At what time? Because it all yeah. is kind of just all over the place and purposefully so. But it, it's a movie it, that's trying to put you in a state, I think. Exactly. Um, I totally agree with you. For me, my experience with this film is that I've never seen the whole thing. I'd only seen – I mean I've seen lots of I – mean, I've seen certain clips of it many a times as most film fans have. Um, like, you know, the whole like driving through the, the desert with the bats and all that, like that's yeah. a very classic scene, especially like, so always, uh, pointed to as like a great opening for a movie. I've, I've seen a few other scenes scouted throughout, but, uh, the, the word I would use instead of, uh, the word that you used uh, would be, uh, disorienting yeah. and chaotic. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it is purposefully so meant to be very disoriented it's meant like you said it's meant to put you in a state it's meant to make you uneasy and un like feel off balance like it's meant yeah. to do that and and director terry gilliam specifically shot with like specific like long lenses to add like depth of field and you know things like that to make things perspective play with perspective and stuff like that um, and then not to mention like my god if vegas was like that in the 70s i would have n- hated it I would have never I wanted mean, to go there. You have a lot more experience with Vegas than I do. That's true. Is... I've I've been to I've been to Vegas a, now a couple of times. Um, first time when I was moving out here to LA, we stopped. Me and my sister stopped in Vegas for like four days, which was really cool. Uh, very chill vibe though. When you're just you and your sister in Vegas, it's very chill. Like uh, we we gambled a little bit. We went to a bunch of great restaurants. We saw Blue Man Group. You know, it was like a very chill Vegas adventure. Uh, and then the second time I went was for my mom's birthday and all my grandparents were there. So again, a very chill Vegas adventure. Uh, so I've never like done Vegas like that. You've, you've not broken the rules of Las Vegas. No, I've not. I very much follow the rules of Las Vegas, but like there's, we'll, we'll get into the movie anyway, but I gotta be honest, man. I fucking hate this movie. Uh, I, 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 I didn't think you would hate it. I knew you weren't going to enjoy it. I don't like it. You don't like it. Yeah. Well, Sarah, it's, it's, was, Sarah was like, "Ricky's gonna hate this movie." Yeah, I hate this movie. Um, <laughs> here's the thing, and it's not like it's not like Hollywood Boulevard. If we're gonna go back to one of our earlier episodes, it's not like Hollywood Boulevard where I hate it on like where I hate it because of its content and kind of like what it like represents. Right. Like, like there's some pretty heinous stuff in Hollywood Boulevard, 
and like there's reasons to hate it for that reason. Um, I hate this movie because it represents everything that I dislike about drug culture. Yeah. I know there's a deeper theme within there and there's something that it is exploring. And I, so I can respect that this movie is like well made and there's something in it. I feel like you could, you could, you may hate the experience of this film, but I feel like you can respect the film. Yes. This is, I, I have, I guess I have a very similar, uh, relationship to this film as I do to like the lighthouse yeah. where like I can respect the filmmaking, the acting, like J- Johnny Depp's performance, I think is really good. I think Benicio de Toro, we talked about unhinged from, uh, from, uh, Kevin Klein and yeah. it's called Wanda. Benicio de Toro is unhinged in this movie. I remember. So the first time I saw this movie, I was like impressed by Johnny Depp. No, this time I'm like Benicio del Toro like eclipses Johnny Depp. In yeah. Movie. But they both are just going for it, man. And yeah, so like, yeah. I, I can respect that. And like I said, the directing and the cinematography, like there's a lot of artistic value in this. And so I can respect that. But as far as like a movie goes, this, yeah, it represents everything that I hate about drug culture because, and we've talked about this several times. I have a, a control, not a control issue per se. Cause it's not like I make it other people's problems per se. <laughs> Like I don't control other people. I never control right. other people. So I'm not controlling right. of other people. So like I want to like put that out there. I have a control issue as far as like I like to control my world. I like to control myself. Yeah. So in that way I have a control I have a control issue. Yeah. Um and so the one of the reasons that I don't like to drink and I don't experiment with drugs is because being out of control not only scares me but also annoys the shit out of me. Like it makes me ups- yeah. angry. Um, and when I see other people like that are like super drunk or super high and they're just acting like a bunch of jackasses, it upsets me very right. much. Pisses like, me off. Little, but, but to push back just slightly. Yeah. I mean, you started getting frustrated just because the mic wasn't working here here mm-hmm. and now you know what i mean and so like i think there is me this is like kind of my philosophy is there is a an uh a, a, a maybe a skill set an art a a a way to learn to lean into the loss of control because no. if you yeah <laughs> because because like you can't you can't let because you don't have control over everything so no, yeah well seth you here's the thing the frustration from today, to be fair to myself, to defend myself here, it was a, is a culmination of a lot of different things. I, I've been having quite the week this week. Um, but yesterday, I forgot that I had a read-through for a feature film that I'm in. And the director texts me. He's like, hey, you know we have the read-through going on right now, right? I was like, shit. So I like literally like – like, you know, put my computer up, set up all my stuff. And like, you know, like I said, I was had these new headphones I bought because my old headphones stopped working just suddenly for no reason. So I had to go spend like a hundred and some dollars on some new nice headphones. I sign on to the Zoom. I knock over my soda because I'm so rushed. So I spill soda all over my floor. And then I'm having to clean it up with my foot as I'm trying to get onto the Zoom. Uh, yeah. I sign on to the Zoom and they're like, we can't hear you. Your mic's not working. And I'm like, well. What? And so, like, I have to go through this whole process of trying to figure out why my mic isn't working and I can't figure it out. And so I have to sign out and then sign in on my phone to, like, get 
into the read through. And like, I'm one of the leads in this movie, so they can't start the yeah. read through until I'm there. So they're just like waiting for me. I was late, and then they were waiting for me, and that made me feel like an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> so like, and there's a reason I forgot. It's because I'm I'm just really busy right now. I'm I'm doing a movie. I'm doing a play. I've been. We've had we had two three people out at work, so I've been covering for a lot of people at work too. Um, not to mention our D and D podcast plus this podcast, and so like it's just been a, a week of being really really busy, and so yeah. I, that thing slipped just slipped through. Um, and so like already I'm I was feeling out of control because I have so much stuff going on. So like my like schedule is kind of like just all over the place. So then that happened, and it it upset me. And then it happened again today when we were getting ready to record this podcast. So you know what I mean? Like it, it, yeah. it was compiling factors. It wasn't just that. And then I got called in yesterday. So I have to go to work after this now because, because someone's sick at work today. So like, yeah. so like I have to leave from here and go straight to work. And then I have to leave straight from work to go to rehearsal. So like – A lot. Yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. So I, I – <laughs> I'm a little bit peaked and I understand that. Um, but – but I watched this movie last week, so I wasn't in that state when I watched this movie. Um, right. But these guys act like a bunch of jackasses. The whole movie, there, there's very few redeemable qualities in them. There's a maybe one or two moments for Johnny Depp's character. Very little for Benicio del Toro's character. Um, yeah. And so, like, all this movie is two hours of them being jerks, and that's that's not enjoyable to me. <laughs> <laughs> with, with like very low character growth or purpose. Right. I mean, yes, that is all true. But I, I, I'm not I'm not justifying their behavior by any means. Mm -hmm. But in terms of like capturing a state, mm -hmm. uh, it's if you've ever been that messed up, which mm -hmm. I know you really haven't. So yeah. So like this is going to be a weird podcast because because like I have been pretty messed up and mm -hmm. like it's it's weird it's weird like we're going to get into like conversations about about this like losing control mm -hmm. giving up control um uh getting into like okay the mind as a place to explore as mm -hmm. uh like and especially getting into like what Johnny Depp's character is saying at the end of the film about uh, about these mind expanding drugs and whether or not they can lead to freedom um, and and it's essentially manifest destiny for humanity, mm. right? So let's go back. We gotta get. We gotta do our our structure. No, you know we can't. We can't drop the acid yet. No, I. <laughs> no, I don't wanna. <laughs> I don't wanna go back to the structure. I no. You're absolutely right. But yeah. So the, for me, this is like I said. It, this movie all came down to this. I this like whole thing where I know I personally have control issues, and. It, it is disorienting and and these guys i just i just I, and I understand there's things to glean from this and we will go into that and yeah. so i like i i do think the movie has value just for an experience for me it pissed me off to to no end to watch these guys behave like this right and like but if you, i have experiences like, in my life where i've had friends 
in this way. And I've had to like take care of them and make sure they didn't like do dumb shit. And like, yeah. that's a burden and it makes it, and we we're talking about what it, these films mean to us and what it makes us feel. And it brings me yeah. back to those times where like, I'm having to nanny people my friends and that's annoying but it's nothing like manning your friends is nothing like actually being in that state no you're absolutely right and i wanted to let you know seth i had my first puff of a cigarette the other day <laughs> what like is it for some for some yeah yeah, yeah it's a scene that justin and i were shooting and he's like can you can you pop can you like smoke a cigarette like and i was like i've never smoked a cigarette he's like would you would you be willing to like just like a couple of puffs? Uh, I was like, as we do for art. And I was like, but that's how it starts, Rick. That's how it starts. Don't say that to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, mom. I'm sorry. But like, I'll tell you what, man, like I took I didn't even like fully inhale. And even then I was like, I could very easily see why people would want to do this. It's yeah, it's 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 very that's, enjoyable. That's why I don't do those things because I, yeah. if people may not think this about me because I am so controlled, I know for a fact I have a very addictive personality. Maybe not addictive per se, but I am very much a like you said. I have like very set not set routines, but I have like things that I do very consistently. I consistently do things. I eat yeah. at the same. I eat at certain places very very frequently. I I do certain things very frequently, and so like yeah. it could be very easy for me to make that part of like a routine, you know. Yeah. So a my pattern. philosophy, I've I've always so I don't know if I've said this before on the podcast, but like I've always I think I think I might have when we we're talking about the Matrix or something like that. Um, but I've always kind of taken a Tibetan Buddhist philosophy when it comes to this kind of stuff. And it's, they have this, they have this, like these monks, what they do is they indulge in everything and then learn to relinquish everything. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like, they, they, they go, okay, it's not, if you abstain, that's not really conquering something. Mm -hmm. If you abstain, you have not beat it. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, I mean, I've never done heroin. I don't want to do heroin. I'm okay with never conquering. Heroin. That's what I was going to say. I think I'm okay with not conquering. So like, right. Hey, like there's a country over there. I could just let that country be. I don't have to conquer it. I got my own shit going on. Right. But like, okay. But if we talk about like society Fear. and like, well, no, hold on. Like societal norms and what most people do. Like, so like there's a huge advantage to drinking with your boss, a major advantage. If I had to teach one thing to kids to get ahead in life, it would be learn to have a drink with your boss because that's when you get promoted. So like we need to put a disclaimer, children don't drink. <laughs> this is when you're older. But Go what on. I mean is, is like in terms of social norms and society, the way society works, like you don't want to get blasted necessarily. No, but you want to be able to have a drink. So like, so like learning to tame those urges is kind of the way I'm not, I'm not saying I've mastered it. I'm not, I, you know, I got lots of stories. Heck I went on a, I had a, I had a rough week last week. You want to get into that if you want, but like, I've, I've always thought it would be better to tame those urges as opposed to relinquish them entirely. Mm -hmm. um, so, but we are again off the rail. We have, we have, we have to do the things to make this the podcast. I'm in a state today and Seth is making me go back to the structure. All right. All right. So now that we've gotten a, 
a, a, a nice little foundation of our now that we've done them now that we've done the masculine <laughs> now it's time for the adrenochrome <laughs> okay so this is how this film came to be so this film is based on a novel uh that was written by hunter s thompson who is a very uh well-known and famous American journalist uh, who also wrote uh, things like Hell's Angels, The Rum Diary, The Curse of Lono, and Screwjack, as well as many, many articles for so many different publications, including Rolling Stones, The Chicago Tribune, The Boston Globe, New York Times, Time, Vanity Fair, Sports Illustrated, and Playboy. Um, they This uh, uh, novel was uh, published in the 70s, uh, and then this film was written and directed by Terry Gilliam. Terry Gilliam, who also uh, directed Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Jabberwocky, Time Bandits, Brazil, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, Tideland, The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, and The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. Uh, he also, those are films that he wrote and directed, but he also directed The Fisher King, 12 Monkeys, The Brothers Grimm, and The Zero Theorem. This film was co-written with Gilliam with his... Con- his typical writing partner, Tony Grissoni, who also wrote Queen of Hearts, The Island of The Island on Bird Street, In This World, Tideland, Brothers of the Head, Death Defying Act, Red Riding, The Unloved, South Cliff, How I Live Now, The Young Pope, Electric Dreams, The City and the City, and The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. Previous drafts of this script, which we are getting into the whole history of this, were written by Alex Cox and his wife, Todd Davies, uh, who both wrote, uh, who Alex Cox wrote, Repo Man, Sid and Nancy, Straight to Hell, Death in the Compass, Searchers 2.0, Repo Chick, Bill, The Galactic Hero, Tombstone Rashomon, and 27, El Club de los Malditos. Uh, And his uh, wife, Todd Davies, wrote the film Three Businessmen. So those are the creators behind this, but here's the whole story. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a quite the trip. Um, the path that fear and loathing in Las Vegas took to becoming a movie seems almost as scattered as the plot of the film itself. The film was adapted from the novel Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, A Savage Journey into the Heart of the American Dream, which was written by famed American journalist Hunter S. Thompson. Hunter S. Thompson uh, already was a successful journalist uh, since the late 60s. Uh, he is credited for popularizing the brand of journalism known as gonzo journalism. Gonzo, which you may recognize as the name of a character in this film. Uh, Gonzo journalism is a style of journalism told in a more narrative style where things are told from a first person, more subjective perspective as the writer themselves is actually the protagonist in the article. Um, The genesis of this novel began in early 1971 following the death of Chicano civil rights activist and television reporter Ruben Salazar at the hands of police during a Vietnam War protest in Los Angeles. Uh, Thompson was writing an article about the Chicano community's disapproval of the war, as well as their general relations with the city of Los Angeles and civil rights issues. Um, the subject of his article was a well-known Chicano attorney uh, and activist uh, for the Chicano movement, Oscar Zeta Acosta. However, relations with the LAPD and LA in general and the Chicano community were not great at that time. So they decided that they shouldn't meet in LA for their both of their safeties. So Thompson took advantage of a job offer by from Sports Illustrated to cover the Mint 400 motorcycle race in Las Vegas, and he brought Acosta along so they could do their their interviews while there. 
so the misadventures and the drugged up escapades of these two men, Thompson and Acosta, would end up serving as the basis of the novel, which was published in two parts by Rolling Stones and as a full book in 1972. So the events and the general layout of this movie and this novel is actually based on factual events. It actually details much of Thompson and Acosta's like drug binge yeah. through through Vegas. So like a lot of this stuff is real, which is insane. With uh, Raul Duke representing Thompson and, Go- and Dr. Gonzo representing Acosta. Um, so that's the basis of the novel. Becoming a film is way harder. Going from a yeah. novel to a film is much, much harder. And it's tough. So originally this film was trying to be adapted in 76 uh, filmmakers like Martin Scorsese and Oliver Stone try to get it off the ground with no luck. Then, after several failures through that time, finally in the early 90s, Rhino Films, the uh, production company, acquired the rights to Thompson's novel. And over the next three to five years, uh, Rhino Films would build, th- uh, would burn through several potential directors, many different writers, uh, and due to creative differences with producers, with fire writers and change credit to the point where even discarding entire drafts of the script uh, and with time running out on their rights agreement with Thompson and him not willing to grant them an extension, Rhino Films convinced Terry Gilliam to direct the film as well as write a completely new draft of the script, which he would write with Tony Grissoni, uh, a continued writing partner of his. And they wrote this film in a matter of days, days, Months before the film was shot, and wow. they stayed very extremely faithful to Thompson's original source material. So they just didn't have time to really like create their or fabricate their own shit. So they stayed very, very faithful to the novel. Uh, and even the production of this film was kind of chaotic as stories uh, of Gilliam on set. Uh, he, he stated it was like one leg was shorter than the other. So like shooting this movie, it was like really chaotic and unbalanced and weird. Um, and to the point where even like shooting in the casinos grew to be difficult as the casinos would only let them shoot between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. And they required the extras to actually gamble during the scenes. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Eventually this film did come out again in 1998. Uh, and it was shot on a budget of around $18 million dollars only grossing $13 million, making it a financial flop with reviews only being slightly better, receiving a generally mixed reception. However, the film would later go on to become somewhat of a cult classic for many film fans, such as Seth here. <laughs> I, it needs to be known. This isn't one of my favorite movies. It's, okay, not, fair. it's not like, it's not like, I, no, Seth, no, Seth, you said you picked this movie. This is one of your favorite movies. It's not one of my favorite movies. It's it's definitely a movie that affected me when I watched it, you know, mm-hmm. like and it's one of those movies that I do appreciate what it's doing. It's like, mm-hmm. like, like again, it's like The Lighthouse. Like, I never want to watch The Lighthouse again. I don't need to. But I appreciated the emotional experience of watching the film. And mm-hmm. that's how I, that's how I feel about this movie, you know. I will say this, and I'll give this, and Justin might flip out on me about this because he loves The Lighthouse. I would sooner watch Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas again before I would watch The Lighthouse again. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, can, I would absolutely I mean, watch this movie again. This movie has rewatchability because it is I wouldn't say entertaining is the right word, but there's just so much going on that like it is fascinating. Yeah. Um and so like I, I would watch it again because it is fascinating and there's some really great performances. The Lighthouse for me is just I, I, I should probably just revisit it just because but anyway, more you're getting off track. Yeah. Um yeah. But, but yeah, so this movie's not pretentious. <laughs> no, it's not. Not at all. <laughs> Yeah, it is not pretentious. I don't know the meaning of the word. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, it's not. Um, And so, yeah, what a weird like little like road this this story has taken to like finally being a film that people can like watch. Pretty trippy and weird. Um, They went through like, oh, that doesn't even get into like the whole like WGA arbitration of like credit. So like. You know, Gilliam, Gilliam and Grissoni wrote their own draft from scratch, but they based it on the novel, like very faithfully. So, so it's it became very similar to older scripts, um, which there had been up to five other versions of this movie that had been developed. And so, when it became time to arbitrate, so for for non film people or non like uh, writers, um, the Writers Guild of America, the WGA. Um, is like the writers union for like film and, and stuff like that. And they decide who gets credit on movies, like who, who gets paid as the writer and who, who gets the credit. Like if there were awards and stuff like that, like who's the actual like names that go on this? Cause behind the scenes, a lot of, there are lots of ghost writers who, who studios bring in to like touch up scripts and, and like, you know, it's like you might sell us your screenplay, but that screenplay is going to be rewritten and altered by other people. Like just like small in small ways, yeah. Uh, who'd never get credit? So that happens all the time. That like most films have been touched up by several ghostwriters. That's just how it is. Um, so Gilliam and Grissoni wrote their own script, but it it was impossible to determine because you have to prove that you've written up to sixty percent of the film yourself to like get sole writer's credit. That's like the rule. That's the line. Yeah. Um, it was impossible for them to do that because Cox and Davies draft, which we talked about earlier, the like uh, the the husband and wife that wrote like the original draft of this, also followed the uh, novel pretty faithfully. So they're using the same scenes and they're using the same details, and so it's nearly impossible to prove that Gilliam and and uh, Grissoni did not use any part of that script as like yeah. a jumping off point. It was just impossible to prove. And so there was a big controversy where they had to give Davies and Cox credit, writer's credit, right. because they just could not – they literally could not prove who wrote what. And, and Gilliam was pretty upset about that, tried to appeal, didn't work. But like yeah. I said, this movie is – the movie itself is bananas. A lot of stuff surrounding it is also pretty bizarre. Yeah. So – this this movie just all around I think gives a bizarre a bizarre vibe. Oh, to the point where like Johnny Depp like lived with Hunter S. Thompson for a while on his owl ranch. He yeah, wore he's... his actual clothes. He so he actually shaved his head. Hunter S. Thompson is the one that shaved Johnny Depp's head for this movie. Johnny Depp paid for Hunter S. Thompson's funeral. He drove his car around Los Angeles for several months before the movie. Like yeah. like this movie is weird. <laughs> this movie has yeah. so much Hollywood history in it. Yeah. It's weird. Um, yeah, I mean, but I mean, that makes sense because drugs have such a, 
such a root, such roots in Hollywood, mm -hmm. you know, like California, San Francisco, um, LA, they like, that was the experimentation ground for all of these psychedelic drugs. And so, I mean, it makes sense. It may it, like, it is intrinsic within the history of Hollywood, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean, I think laid the foundation of where we are today with media and like the way that we kind of like interface with the world with our brains. Like mm -hmm. we're no longer, like we're no longer, like we're no longer interested in reality. You know, mm -hmm. we're, we're interested in what we can imagine. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And so I think that's like a good transition to, I mean, what, what have we not done yet? What have, well, what is what, it, Seth? What is it? Yeah, what is it? What is it? So for, for folks out there who haven't watched Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas in quite some time or have never watched Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, this is what it is. This is the plot of the movie, if you can call it that. This is the general story. <clears throat> Las Vegas, Nevada, 1971. A journalist and his, quote, Samoan, quote, attorney friend <laughs> brings their way through a non-stop psychedelic trip in sin city lasting several days during the height of the vietnam war that's what it is <laughs> he's got a heart to do <laughs> and john <Gianna> pectoris <laughs> something one i loved the, one for the doctor <laughs> something i loved that is like accurate if you're ever in one of these situations is like one person is messed up and then the other person covers for them, you know, but it oscillates. It's never just like, it's never just one or the other. It's like, it's like, you're never on the same page. Totally. No. Uh, yeah. That's true. Well, Ricky. Yeah. Go ahead I and gotta, ask. I gotta ask you, you know, like if you're in loathing in Las Vegas, what's it about? So I want to be upfront here. <clears throat> uh, I wrote zero notes on this movie. Wow. <laughs> I didn't write any notes because I found it to be – I write my notes so I know specifically when certain things happen or like certain things I want to reference and things like that in context. And, and my notes are typically in order. Um, but I found that this movie – again, the story itself is not really important and like the actual plot, it doesn't matter really when things happen. They can kind of happen whenever – and even the movie itself, like, kind of jumps around in time a little bit. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, there's not really a need for me to write down any notes because um, I can remember these moments out of context. Anything I might want to talk about, with the exception of, like, one or two specific things. Um, but what I felt, again, it felt very disoriented and chaotic. But as far as, like, what is it about and what does it make me actually, like, feel – other than those emotions was this idea of the nihilistic fallout following massive trauma. Okay. So this movie is very, they, so the studio wanted Gilliam to update the story. They wanted him to set it in the nineties to try and make it more relatable. And Gilliam refused to do that because he said, the backdrop of the Vietnam War makes this movie more uh, 
poignant in a lot of ways. Yeah. Because they're if you set this in the nineties, at that time there wasn't something as like controversial as yeah. the Vietnam War. Or horrific. Yes, exactly. And so the nihilistic and like the just like horrible behavior of these two guys in the nineties are just like two like assholes basically. Like yeah. and he's like, that's not that's not very analytical. That's not very uh, – it's just, it's just it's not really exploring what that original novel was kind of getting at. And so he's like it has to be set here because their behavior is a direct result of the turmoil of that time period. Yeah. Like it's, it's the counterculture movement of the 60s and the drug – and the pro-drug movement of the 60s and like hippies and things like that. Um, that did you know peace and love that like completely failed going into the Vietnam War, uh, and these guys kind of just saying you know what fuck it, we're just gonna go do a bunch of drugs and and just kind of free ourselves in that way from whatever it is that we life is. Um, and I think this happens whenever we have a tragedy. A lot. Yeah. Um, we can think back to like 9-11. We were going through like the, uh, you know, the mass shootings and things like that here. Whenever something like that happens, there inevitably is a few people who experience this. Why? Nothing matters. Why give a fuck anymore? Kind of kind of thing. Right. It, I feel like there's always a wave of, of nihilism that happens after these types of events. Um and I feel like this is what this movie is is really going for is like this American dream of like America being this place of like freedom and happiness and prosperity is there's always a moment after these these horrible events that happen where people the wool is pulled up out you know the wool is is the veil is removed and people see America yeah. for what it is and yeah. at that point why give a fuck about the rules? Why give a fuck about any of it? You know? Yeah. Uh, and so that's what this movie feels to me. I did it. I did it. I know I'm wrong. I'm guilty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and this movie, while like it's, it has these funny moments and it has this like, wow, these guys are just being ridiculous underneath it all. You know, it's called fear and loathing in Las Vegas. And it is like this, like existential f- fear. That's, that was, that was prevailing during the era of the Vietnam war. Um, and a way of escaping that fear and that like depression is to whatever. I'll just take a bunch of drugs uh, and, and free myself from, from rules, the rules of Las Vegas uh, and, and whatever consequences come like that's what it is. You know, Yeah, you bought the ticket, take the ride. Exactly. Uh, and you're right. In that scene with like the, with the cop, he, he, Eventually, he does just pull. He does just pull over, and he's like very much like, "I did it. It was illegal. I know it." <laughs> and like he's like, was, this co- "Did the cop know who he was?" I think that's what happened, right? The cop recognized not, his. Not license. supposedly. Not supposedly. No. That's not what I read. It just he just like he just. I think he disarmed the cop with like how like he was behaving. Oh, weird. Yeah, I thought I thought the cop recognized his license as him being Hunter S Thompson. And he's like, Oh, the man with your mind. Like I thought, I thought it was like, 
like, oh, I'm just going to let this celebrity go because I really like his. It might be. I mean, he, he maybe he is a like so potentially maybe because like I said, Raul Duke is. It's not like Raul Duke is Thompson. It's a fictionalized version of Thompson. So it's not like, and I know they say the name Thompson a couple times in this movie as like a person. It's right. really confusing. Ryle Duke, Duke is this his his fake name that he go, he goes under. Yeah, it is Hunter S. Thompson. That's why yeah. the telegram the telegram is to mm-hmm. Hunter S. Thompson. Right, but they, they have pseudonyms they go under whenever right. they're traveling. Right, and so like um, what I what I what I read is the cop situation is that he got pulled over, he got taken out his real license, and the cop was a fan. Maybe uh, I mean that might be it. It isn't. That might be what happened, but like, but even then, that's like, you know, we talked about capitalism and elitism, right? And yeah. how celebrities get treated uh, yeah. differently than other people, which is obviously very true. It's just, it's just, these guys are just acting with complete reckless abandon of like any type of consequence or behavior. I mean, they're like picking up children off the street from the airport and bringing them back to <laughs> hotels and hitting on them and threatening. Oh, Threatening maids and that that and trying to buy orangutans and <laughs> and and like just bananas, shit, man. Yeah, like yeah. like these guys trying to kill, like trying to kill themselves in the bathtub. And that that scene's maybe my favorite. That's a good scene. That's so like crazy. They there is obviously just a complete lack of like who gives a fuck anymore, you know. Or do they give all the fucks? So, well, that's well, that's the argument of like nihilism, right? Is are you nihilistic because you care so much that it's just overwhelming, right? Uh, I'm gonna take a. I'm gonna take a. I'm no, gonna expound. What's what, what's it about to you? I'm gonna expound on what you said. I You're, agree. You don't expound I, on this show. I agree with your take on nihilism, mm-hmm. but I think what this film is doing is a bit deeper than that as, mm-hmm. a, as opposed to just capturing what nihilism the not the, the like i think it's there i think what you're mm-hmm. saying is there but what i think it's actually like it's it the further theme is what does it mean to be free mm-hmm. and that exploration of freedom how do you do that mm-hmm. especially when there's nowhere else to explore and I, i'll say it's something that i was thinking about when uh, you were just talking about nihilism, it's like, what's the difference between finding, like if you're free from, you're escaping, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you're free from something, you have to escape something, mm-hmm. right? And so like, what does it mean if you're escaping? Like why, why would these guys rather be in this hellscape than yeah. reality? That's true. So, I mean, uh, what what does uh, what does Duke say about an ether binge? He says something about an ether binge. Let me pull up the quote. I know I know where you can find it. Um, give me a second. But uh, go ahead and continue. Well, I mean, so like, I mean, the uh, the film opens up with a quote mm-hmm. um, that I think is very. I mean, it's it's very powerful, and it's that. A man will make himself a beast to escape the feeling of being a man, you know? Mm -hmm. And so like, 
this like pursuit of freedom, what's driving it. And, and then it, we got to go to the bookend of the film where Hunter S. Thompson is saying, you know, like the flower power movement in the sixties had this belief that this, these mind altering drugs would, would lead us towards the light. And there was something leading us towards that light. Mm. Right. So like, it's either, if there's not anything leading this towards the light, then we're just going, we're just expanding our minds and discovering horrors, you know, Mm. like the more we know, the less we, we wish we didn't, Mm -hmm. you know, but it's the last place to explore, you know, Mm -hmm. like we've already, like other than space, like we have nowhere else left on earth, but our own psyches Mm -hmm. to explore. So if you're, if you're indoctrinated with this idea of the American dream, that if you just, if you, if you just like, you're going to get lucky, you're going to discover something, you're going to figure it out. And suddenly you're going to, you're going to hit the jackpot and become successful. Mm-hmm. But you've, you've, you've traversed all, all known lands and all, all you've done everything, you know, to do that. I mean, you're eventually going to try to find another way, you know? And, mm-hmm. and so like, you're going to have to try to break, break shit up, you know, like, and I think drugs do that for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I see what you're saying. And like, that, that is, that is something that you're right. So we get these really good bookends of this movie where it's like, this is what I'm trying to say. It's like, okay, thanks Terry Gilliam with that quote. Yeah. Uh, which I think is Dr. Who, who, who's he quoting? Is, his doc, is it Dr. Johnson or something Dr. like that? Johnson. Yeah. Dr. Johnson. Whoever that is. Whoever that is. Yeah. <laughs> um, I and, like the quote though. No, I like the quote. I think the quote's really good. And it was on top of uh, a cover, like a really eerie cover of my favorite things from Sit Sound of Music. Yeah. Um, which I think is really interesting because if you compare the Vietnam War and kind of like what like people were going through at that time, you could make some similar like some similar feelings to like the Holocaust, which is like what you know, yeah. the Sound of Music is dealing with. Not to say that they're the same thing because they're not. Um, but I think some of the pain and trauma that came out of the Vietnam War, I think can be also generally compared to, to the Holocaust and a lot of the trauma that people experienced there. So it's interesting that the, already the film is like drawing this like allusion to another time period of like very dark and like human just depravity and, 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 and just, horrible horrible acts against humanity type stuff vietnam sucked um and then we end the movie with duke driving out of las vegas and he we see him pass a sign that says fear and loathing uh as as if it were a town population zero kind of a, a kind of telling the audience like oh duke is leaving is leaving this a state of fear and loathing he's freed himself from yeah. that state um and it's like okay i guess i don't really th- that's not what the film really made me feel 
Like it told me that's what it's saying. I think I think what he says before that's more relevant. Right. That's what I'm saying. I was like, I feel like filmmaking wise, the director's like, this is what I'm saying. Like put visual visual symbolism yeah. of it up. And I was like, but that experientially of the movie, that's not what I'm getting at all. I don't feel that Duke is has freed himself from fear and loathing. It does not no. seem that way. I don't think so. I think he goes there. I think he goes to fear and loathing. Oh, you think he's entering fear and loathing as opposed to leaving fear and loathing? I, I don't. I, I don't think that matters. Like I think that. I think well, if you've ever done drugs, you get the fear and loathing. Okay, like if you've ever done drugs, you get into the state of mind that is totally paranoid, and it it can feel like total hell because you're just like. Like it's not always, it's not a hundred percent of the time, but if you get in the right mindset, it's bad and you can't, and you can't really escape it until you come down, you know? Mm-hmm. And, but you, you do usually learn something. So I think what that is symbolizing is, is he came to the thesis of his trip, right? Mm-hmm. Like this, the story that we, we saw, like the, the, the lesson he learned, he did, he did glean a lesson from these experiences. Yeah. Don't be which, a dick. Uh, no, I mean, I think, I think the, like, I think I, I listened to it twice cause I, I really wanted to hear it, but when he's, when he's like typing and then it's like that zoom out over, Mm-hmm. over anywhere it gets like like tighter like the, the yeah almost like you're going I mean, through it, a tunnel type of thing and I, I think it's meant to look like a tab tab of acid as he's oh, as he's okay. as he's he's zooming out but like it's it, he's basically saying like if there's no god then this flower power mind expansive catalyst that happened is nothing or it's not nothing. It's only it's only revealing more atrocities and more horrors well, amongst humanity. Right. Because like what the, you like you said, flower power was all about like peace and love, right? Peace yeah. and love will will yeah. make the world a better place. Um, and it, I think a lot of people would say that movement failed. You know, like we definitely did not but, go in that direction. But but I mean, I will agree with him. Um, when he's describing it initially, he's talking about how they knew they were doing something right. There was something um, that was right about that movement. And I think it was the motivating force behind the movement of, of I'm going to say like of freedom, um, of grace, essentially, um, that we should love one another despite our differences. We should love one another despite race or, or whether you're Samoan or, or, or yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you prejudiced? Uh, like, <laughs> like, like, like there, that motivating force was good. Mm-hmm. Right. But if, if there is no like motivating force there, if there is no force of good, then it's, these drugs are just, causing the the expansion of the horrors of humanity essentially so that being said i think i i I, sarah drew some interesting conclusions 
or interesting parallels between now and the this film mm-hmm. and like like the QAnon stuff mm-hmm. and uh, Adrenochrome and just the lizard people, which are all like undertones of the QAnon movement, like that the Hollywood elite are milking children in torture chambers for adrenochrome and that they're all lizard people, you know, like Mm. somehow this movie seeped into the culture of a real conspiracy theory Mm. that is happening now. And I mean, I I think it's kind of just proving Hunter S Thompson's point, you know, like, like the expansion of the human mind is going to seep into the subconscious of the rest of humanity. So these mind altering drugs that we've started to do are going to make reality more and more trippier, you know, Mm. and we're starting to see it now. I mean, like, like, I mean, you can directly attribute these mind altering drugs to like major advances in technology. Yeah. I get what you're saying, but also I, I, so this is something that like bothers me about like some of that, like, like you're talking about specifically like QAnon and like conspiracy theories and things like that. Like, like I'm not validating the theories. I'm just, no, 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 I know. But like it puts us in a place of like where we're at now. So like with speaking of another traumatic event, like the, you know, the pandemic, right? Like I think coming coming through this pandemic, I think a lot of people are coming to nihilism after the pandemic. You know, yeah. there's a lot of like, it's hard. Fuck, it's really hard. Yeah. Fuck. Like why even try? Because it's not, nothing's going to get better. Nothing's going to work. I think a lot of people are, are coming to nihilism in that way. And you know, the, the vaccine came out and there is an inherent mistrust of the government and science right now. Uh, yeah. that, that we can't even get people to agree to just take a shot, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't want to be political on here because like, uh, right. I'm, you know, I'm pro vaccine, but I, I can understand, you know, like we've talked about this before, but just personally, the, the politics of forcing people to get a vaccine is murky. And it's I don't, I don't yeah. necessarily agree with having to force people to do something because yeah. I right. think that that's a, that is not necessarily what I'm saying, right. but I think people should want to get the vaccine. You know what I mean? Right. You should at least trust health officials enough to want to get the vaccine. And, and it's because we have a culture right now that loves to just, you know, we've, we've sown, like you said, we've sown and subconsciously into our culture a mistrust of our government and of science in general. Like, like, you know, there's like well, flat earthers but, and things like that. Well, there's like in conspiracy. Well, here's the thing. Like, and this is like we're, we'll, I'll get back on topic in a second. Like, but there is a so YouTube is big into conspiracy theories. As far right. as like, conspiracy theories are very big on YouTube because the algorithm picks them up and promotes them. Yeah. And so like, more than other things, like that's just what the algorithm does. So the algorithm is literally pushing conspiracy theories in our face because they they get more traffic, they get more flow, and so like we as a culture have become more into and we as a society overall we believe in more conspiracy theories than we have in in the entire human history 
Well, I think it makes sense. Like, I mean, our whole country was founded on not trusting the government. Yeah, exactly. You know? That and don't so, tell me what to do. <laughs> yeah, that and don't tell me what to do. So, or, I mean, and you can call it freedom or you can call it escape. You know, mm-hmm. again, like we were escaping Europe. We were yeah. trying to, we were, we were wanting to do what we wanted to do, you mm-hmm. know, but eventually society catches up to it's, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm, I, you know, me, I just talk out of my ass a lot, but mm-hmm. it's like society eventually will catch freedom, you know? Mm-hmm. So like what you have to ask is, what is it about freedom that we need? Like, what is it, what is it by trying to create an environment and maintain freedom? Like, is that a, I mean, I want to believe it's a good thing. Hmm. What is it about that state of being free that is crucial to being human? And well, also there, there's a, there's a, there's the subjectivity as to what is free, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, what does it mean to be free? Like, does that mean you can literally do anything you want with no, con- with no, I'm, I'm, like, no executive punitive consequences as far as, like, from a government or from an authority of any way? I'm fascinated by this right now. Like, I'm yeah. fascinated by the word freedom and, like, what does it mean to be free? Mm-hmm. Because I think it's really. I think nobody really knows. I, was, I mean, I think. I mean, if you want to just take it like on this basis, freedom is literally you can do whatever you want, and no one can punish you for it. As far as like a an authoritative body, like if you hurt somebody, somebody can hurt you in response. Like there's well, a there's a natural a natural justice, but like as far as like being held accountable for your actions by a larger body, like there's, I, there would need be no rules. Well, I think you can just dive into the self about this question as opposed to even worrying about politics. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, like Ricky. No. Do you feel free within yourself to do the things you want to do? Personally, I don't No. You know what I mean? Like I personally don't feel free. Most of the time I have horrible anxiety disorder and depression. Like I, I have, uh, issues regarding my own sexual guilt and my pursuit and desires around sex. Uh, like I have this thing I have, I feel like I'm a person in me that can't be that person. Mm -hmm. Right. And in order to like be that person, like that, I like have an idea of, or like that level of freedom, I have to be out of my gourd. Like I have to be pretty gone to actually move through the world in a free way. Mm. So it's really like, okay, again, making a beast of a man relinquishes him of the pain of being a man. Mm. Right. So like, there's something about being human that is painful Mm. And isn't is is like a struggle for freedom. Yeah, and I and I totally would get that what that means in the context of this movie. So these guys legitimately Duke is going to to Vegas to do this to actual cover actually cover the mint four hundred and then yeah. he has to go back to actually cover this like 
district attorneys against drugs thing. Like he actually is a journalist. Like it's he's like I'm a doctor of journalism. He says that like throughout the whole movie, and it, it, yeah. uh, you think he might be lying because they're just full, they're just so full of shit. But that no, it's actually true. He actually is a journalist, um, and he it's actually is he, sent to, to cover. It's not what he wants to be writing about. No, uh, so he actually is sent to cover these things in Vegas. So, but he. Most of the movie is not focused on him doing his job or him actually exploring anything. Most of this is just like him, him and Gonzo just kind of fucking around Vegas doing whatever. And you're Every, right, it's because they, yeah, it's because they are free from having to think about all the existential shit that's going on around them. Specifically, one of the moments I think of is when they're in their hotel room and there's footage of the Vietnam War on the TV and we see it projected on like the wall. Uh, and Duke says something along like, there's like a metal snake in the sky. And, <laughs> and, and Gonzo says, shoot it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he says, no, I need, I'm studying its tactics first. <laughs> and so like, they're literally watching footage from the, the war and they're so detached from what it actually means. Yeah. They're free of it. Like, sure. Yeah. He's experiencing it in a different way, but he's free of what actually the impact of that thing is. Because he's so, like you said, so out of his mind on drugs at the moment. Yeah, you don't have to worry about reality. You don't have to worry mm -hmm. about, you can just focus on your own psyche as mm -hmm. opposed to everything else that bogs down who you actually are. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, but is that a good thing? Probably not in large doses right well yeah and i think you hit on like doing a whole lot of like mind-altering drugs or just drugs in general shuts down certain parts of your analytical and logical brain and and brings you back to a more like ego state you yeah. know and like in like in the id you know uh that's like as they call it, the lizard brain yeah right yeah. and i think for me that scene with the lizards having an orgy uh for me, nothing represents this like pure animalistic impulsive thing more yeah. than Vegas. Vegas is an, yeah. the impetus of that kind of idea. And so for me, Duke seeing all these lizards having sex all around him is this is it, tapping into his lizard brain of like fear, well, sex, impulse. But I believe I believe that he's so cerebral. Mm-hmm right that he can't it's way that's horrifying to him mm -hmm. right so like like when we see at the end of the film where he's like wearing a strap-on lizard tail mm -hmm. right it's like it, he can't get to that state like he want i think i think he would rather you know yeah he would rather get to that lizard state because then he would at least be free of his own mind well it's so crazy because in this movie both both Duke and Gonzo, you're right, at different points in the movie are in different states. But the difference between the two and why in the beginning of, the, of this conversation I talked about their irredeem, irredeemability and how Gonzo, I think, maybe a little bit more so than, than Duke. Duke never does, other than just being kind of a jerk uh, and, and kind of just like a, a general jackass, doesn't really do anything wrong. You know, he isn't not he doesn't pick up a, a child <laughs> a, you know a 15 year old from the airport and bring him back to a hotel he doesn't threaten 
to stab a waitress. He does you know? drive a car onto an airport freeway. Yes, that's bad. <laughs> that's bad. I agree. That's pretty bad. But it's not this. It's not the dark. It's not as dark. It's a little yeah. bit more. Well, just like think... you idiot. But like that's not. There's darkness in like what like Gonzo is right. doing. But to be to push back a little here. Gonzo is actually the way more responsible one when the rubber meets the road. So like Gonzo actually knows how to like maintain better in public. I would disagree. There's the whole carousel scene where he, uh, like, yeah, I mean, he does go over the edge sometimes, but like he also like books their their rooms and makes sure that like he he makes sure that shit gets done, you know. And I think I think that I think that he trusts Hunter S. Thompson's character to let his guard down, where he does not let his guard down normally. And he actually trusts Hunter S. Thompson to call him out. Like mm-hmm. like he like he felt horrible when he realized what he was doing with with this fifteen uh, year old Christina Ricci. Yeah, yeah. So There's a lot like, of famous people in this movie. Just pop up randomly. Yeah, yeah. Cameron, Cameron Diaz, Diaz, Christopher Moore. Yeah, just all yeah. over the place. It's funny. Yeah. Um, I get, I get what you're saying. I think, for me, it, it just, I struggle because, like you said, and we can, we're getting to the towards towards the end of the, our conversation here. I struggle to understand that because I've never done it, but I struggle to understand from an outside perspective. What good is that doing a person? And like specifically, I think of like I have some like alcoholism and like certain like drug addiction type stuff in my family. And so like for me, like playing with that stuff is like playing with fire a little bit. Um, And like for me, I think about, you know, know, alcoholism is a thing. It's a disease, right? being addicted to nicotine is a disease yeah. being, you know, being a narcotic, being addicted to narcotics is, is like horrible. Like, why would you want to fuck with that shit? It's so like, for me, I just don't get it. When it goes back to our risky business conversation, I just don't understand taking the risk for something that's like, I mean, you're doing, I feel like most people, everybody who goes into that shit, it's not, not like, like, I'm not going to get addicted to this shit. No one wants to yeah. be addicted to the shit. And I, saying- it's so like, I just don't get no one right. that's, a, that's addicted wants to be addicted. No. One. Right. But I will say this and I'm not just in disagreement with what you're saying. It's probably mm-hmm. in terms of health, smarter to do what you're saying. Right. Hmm. However, if you play with fire and learn to harness it, it can be very useful. And I think that I do believe there are some psychological uh, benefits to well, the exploration. You're not, you're not wrong. Because, I mean, like right now, like there's a whole bunch of research going into like magic mushrooms right like yeah. a psilocybin well, i mean you could just talk about antidepressants i mean some people mm-hmm. live well, with antidepressants yeah some people would tell you that th- that whole yeah. i mean but but you're just talking we're talking about i mean so you're just drawing 
a line in the sand for drugs, right? Like, but drugs are used all the time. Mm -hmm. and, and it's, they are, they, the doctor, the medical field, doctors have harnessed fire. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. It's just, mm -hmm. it's just the, the explorers like Hunter S. Thompson were the first people to do it. They were, they mm. were exploring these things. And like, I have done some drugs. I'm not gonna, you know, uh, tell me specific ones, but like, I'm kidding. for example, for example, like I, I, I struggle with such bad anxiety. I have only ever felt totally confident like a few times in my life and only in drug, drug induced states. Mm. So it's like interesting to know what that feels like, you know, like, Oh, this is what normal people feel. Mm. Um, and it tells you like, maybe I need medicine, you know, like, I don't know what, what that would be. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm also scared of like being prescribed because then, because like, again, for me, it's about I would need to be able to do it and then not do it, right? Mm. So I don't want to be dependent, but at the same time, I, I want the freedom to do it. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Yeah. So uh, to boil this all down, kind of like concentrate it, for me, this movie was – extremely disorienting and chaotic and frustrating because I struggle to understand what, what exactly this guy is getting out of all the pain that they caused throughout this trip. Right. Like they, he's trying to so free his mind. I he's understand trying to free his mind. I understand. And I guess for me, there's a selfishness in that of like causing so much disruption and, and potential danger and, and actual potential pain and trauma to other people in yeah. your own pursuit of, of your own psychological freedom. That upsets me a little bit. You know what I mean? That yeah. like that idea of like, I, I only care about my personal free emotional freedom. Fuck everybody else. But that upsets that being, me. That being said, okay. I think, I think we can like, delve into i think a good a good like a perfect juxtaposition to this is the police intervention conference or whatever mm -hmm. right yes so like those people are so uptight yes they kill people yeah we see that now yeah. you know what i mean, I mean and, 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 and i mean the the genesis like we said the genesis of the story of the novel was a a chicano activist protesting the vietnam war being shot and killed by Los Angeles police. And and Hunter S. Thompson says it in the movie. He's like, you know, I might be a felon or two, but I'm not violent. You know, I'm mm. no danger to society. And mm. like I and like most potheads are not. <laughs> you mm. know, like like there is something to be said about expanding your thinking. You know, being mm. so rigid in your thinking is what causes psychological breaks a lot of times. Mm. So I think I think it's a balance. I think it's a, a spectrum. There's some people that should never do drugs. You know what I mean? Um, I was talking about this with Sarah. Like, I have a very vivid imagination. It did not take a lot for me to have hallucinogen experiences on marijuana. 
And she's like, no, you didn't. You didn't. I'm like, yo, I did. Like the first few times I smoked weed, I was, I was seeing things, which it's because I have a good imagination, you know? Mm -hmm. And so like my brain filled in the gaps, Mm -hmm. but like, I don't think, you know, I mean, you can't know that's the problem. But I do think that these kinds of drugs have, they do something. Mm. We should at least figure out what they do, you know? Yeah. I, again, it, 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 I get, I get it. I do logic. Like my logic brain understands, but my emo, my emotional brain, you just get so mad. And again, I've had experiences where I'm like babysitting my friends because they're acting like a bunch of jerk, putting yeah. themselves in danger and I have to take care of them. And they, and they're without any consideration of like how like this like traumatizes a strong word, but you know what I mean? Like how that affects somebody having to like be worried for your friend's safety. Yeah, yeah. Constantly because they just want to have fun. They just want to free themselves. They just want to escape. And the burden it puts on other people to like be like, now I have to make sure you don't fall down the stairs. Yeah. You know? And I, like I, what I, it would happen if I wasn't here. Like and, said, and things like that. It's, it is, you should not, you should not be escaping to the detriment of others. That's when it's a problem, right? And, and the, I think one of the most important scenes and even Terry, Terry Gilliam had said as much is that waitress scene in the diner where yeah. he, where Gonzo threatens this nurse and, and Duke even yeah. says like, I could see it in her eyes. Like this, like, yeah, yeah animalistic not, survival instincts i'm not saying that what these guys are this is the extreme yeah. of what of what that is like it i honestly seeing those hotel rooms destroyed like that stresses me out so much there's something about that those trashed hotel rooms that make me physically uncomfortable mm-hmm. but like i mean i think if you're going to make a movie about drugs you got to show you got to show the extreme of it, you know. Well, this movie, I and I've heard this from a, a lot of people. This and even you have said this much. This film captures what it feels like from an outside person. It gives an outsider a perspective yeah. of what it actually feels like to be inside yeah. this type of thing. Yeah, uh, and that and that's why I think this movie is still what it is. You know, that's mm-hmm. why it's revered. Is because like if you've ever been on acid, the floor really does that. Mm-hmm. Like, like people's faces really go like, like, I mean, it's a very accurate representation. I've never done most of the drugs in this movie, but like, I was say they pick some, I mean, they pick some, 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 you know, heavy hitters, cocaine, yeah. acid, but they also are doing some stuff that I don't think are as common today, like mescaline no. and ether, what? ether. Exactly. Yeah. I found that quote on ether, by the way. Uh, it's there's nothing in the world more helpless and irresponsible and depraved than a man in the depths of an ether binge, yeah. <laughs> which is crazy. But to 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 wrap it all up, um, I think that there, yeah, it, I just I just really might very much struggle with this movie because it all I all I see is the the trauma that these guys cause other people. Um, and the fact that he, you know, he drives away from Vegas and he's happy or he's at least found potentially found a a revelation of sorts, which is great for him. But the, the, the wake that they leave behind them is 
super destructive and I, I don't like it. I agree from a macro perspective. Yes, you're right. But if you go to Vegas, you bought the ticket. I've been to Vegas several times and I've been fine. I went and saw a magic show <laughs> with my grandparents. Which, it was great. But you're looking for you're looking for some sort of feeling, right? You're looking for yeah. some sort of freedom, well, you, some well, you sort know, of escape. My sister's moving to Vegas the next month. So so I'll be probably be in Vegas way more frequently now. So who knows what I'll get into. Pick up a bottle of ether. (laughs) No. (laughs) But let me say this, and we I might redact this later, but do you know who Gonzo reminds me of? Uh who? Someone we both know. Keeling? Yeah. 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 I can see that. (laughs) He reminds me of Chris Robles. Uh, see, I don't know Chris Robles yeah. enough to know. A bartender we're, friend of mine. We're gonna the, redact the, these names. <laughs> the, the their their relationship reminds me of Hunter S. Thompson and my relationship with this guy, Chris Robles. And like, your Duke? Yeah. Yeah, mm. for sure. Nice. If we we've been on some some adventures. That's and... fair. Um but yeah, I think overall I just come to this movie with like a whole bunch of baggage. <laughs> I mean, I think that your I think I think your perspective is a safe one, but that's that's I, my middle name, right? But I think that you could afford to be less safe. I, I, could I? Think, I? I think if you pushed yourself, like it's just like anything else, right? Like, like if you worked out, like that's how I see it. That's how mm-hmm. I. That's what I'm saying is like I work out on losing control, so that way in my regular life it just feels normal, mm-hmm. like the lack of control. So I, I, I sometimes will choose to go further down that rabbit hole. So that way reality is like more bearable. Mm. Yeah, I get what you're saying. I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like it. Seth, I took two puffs of a cigarette last week. <laughs> so don't tell me about, about being too now, safe. And now you're going to die of cancer, Ricky. I might. I feel, I feel I'm wheezy today. But that's, yeah, that's my other, that's my other like flip of the coin is like, you don't know, you know, nobody knows what is going to be their end. And so like, you should, you should take some risks. Live. Why does it always come back to risk and balance? I feel like every movie we watch is like risk and balance. There is no balance without some risk. It yeah. doesn't make any sense. If you stand right in the middle, stand right in the middle of a scale, it's going to be perfectly balanced. As soon as you start taking steps to one side or the other, it's when things become unbalanced. <laughs> Your analogy like, makes no sense. <laughs> like in life, if you don't do anything, you won't do anything. Whatever, Seth. <laughs> but anyway, I think we've come to a natural conclusion with our conversation of. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Um, it's a trippy movie. If you guys haven't seen it, please go and watch it. Um, it there's definitely a lot to experience in it, and there's a lot to appreciate, it's, it, even just from a filmmaking standpoint. Like, yeah, like it's got yeah. lots of artistic value in it. Um, how you feel about the story and the themes and things like that, that's a whole different discussion. Um, but check it out. So, Seth, do we have a guest next week? I have not set up one. No. Okay. So if, this... if you wanted, if you want one the following week, I can pull the trigger for sure. Okay. Um, I was prepared for this. Um, okay. So 
we, since uh, we don't have a guest this week, it's my turn to choose. Um, so, uh, the new uh, Jennifer Lopez movie just came out this past week. Um, and not that we're going to watch that, but uh, it reminded me of a Jennifer Lopez movie no. that I really wanted to watch that I have not watched yet. Oh, no, Ricky, no. What? What? <laughs> Keep going, what? keep going. Just keep what? going. I'm just wondering what, what I'm going to say. I have no idea what Jennifer Lopez movie we're going to watch. What? There's only what one that about? I think has. I think there's only one that has any credibility. It's like the Hustle or something. Hustlers. The hus- Hustlers. Yeah. That's, hustlers. Why? Why? No, why no to Hustlers? I just have was you like, seen oh, it? no, no, I haven't. Then why are we saying no? I'm just saying there's only one possible movie that could be at all any good. So is this it? Is this what we're doing? Well, now you're making me second guess myself because I don't know why you're so against it. I mean, I'm fine with the, I'm fine with, I was scared you were going to say like Gigli or something. No, right? I've, I've seen Gigli. I'm never, we're never going to watch it on this show. <laughs> never, never, ever. No, we're going to watch Selena. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no we're yeah it's gonna be hustlers because this, this okay. movie that got a lot of praise that i've not been able to to check out yet um so it's definitely a movie that like why not take this opportunity sarah will um, be excited uh so if you guys want to watch along we'll be watching the 2019 film hustlers uh starring jennifer lopez if you are having trouble finding it that's how you know you're got the right one uh, you can watch Hustlers on Google Play Movies, Vudu, Amazon Prime, Apple TV, and with a Hulu subscription. So if you have any of those things, uh, you can find Hustlers uh, and watch along with us. Uh, Seth, thank you so much for being with me today. Uh, go ahead and shout yourself out. Yeah, I am Seth Adam Crow on Instagram. I'm uh, at the Birdie Word on Twitter. Uh, and I have a podcast on Spotify and Apple Music called The Crowcast. That's D and then one word, Crowcast, C-R-O-W-E-C-A-S-T. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. And I am Ricardo Blade Diaz. Or sorry, I am Ricardo Safe Diaz. <laughs> you can find me at Ricardo Blade Diaz on Instagram and TikTok. Uh, you can find both Seth and I on our Dungeons and Dragons show that streams on Twitch and YouTube. That is Character Player. You can also follow Character Player at TikTok and Instagram at Character Player, just like it sounds. Uh, thank you all so much for listening and watching along. Please let us know what you guys think of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Uh, and, uh, what it made you feel and what you think it's about. Join the conversation, why don't you, people? Let's make this a thing. Uh, until next time, I am Ricardo Boydias, and that is Seth Crow. We will see you again very soon. Adios. Bye. Hit the bass. Hit the bass. Get the bats. <laughs> We're a bat country. <laughs>